every 10 or 15 years, a film is produced that is so overwhelming, so forceful in its impact, that it becomes deeply embedded in the mind. Persons under 18 will not be admitted. Hey, what's up? This is Jeremy Palco from The Walking Dead, and this is Still Toking With. Hi, I'm Larry Kenny, and you're listening to Still Toking With... What's up, everybody? It's comedian Sherwin Array, and you're listening to Still Toking With on the Dorkening Podcast Network. Happy Wednesday, everybody. You're watching Still Token With. My name is Leo. I'm the monkey behind the keyboard here. We have an awesome show scheduled for you, as always. And uh, Benjamin. Yo. Dude, I'm super psyched. I know I know we're an hour early tonight, folks, but listen, trust me, we had to do this. Uh, our, our amazing guest is coming to us from the UK. It's midnight over there. And uh, yeah, I just can't wait to get into it and, and chat with this gentleman. Awesome. Same here. Jar Jar. Guys, thank you so much for letting me be on tonight. This is amazing. This is an awesome episode. Thank God Jeff's not doing well. (laughs) (laughs) That's a joke. Uh, And uh, showing up uh, late as usual, uh, Rico and Eric. Hey, how's it going? Guys, I'm doing real well. Uh, Rico also does not take care of himself, so. Great to have you. Great Actually, to have he's you. taking care of himself. That's why he can't be here. So. Oh. <laughs> well, we don't want to know about his personal stuff. Fuck <laughs> all y'all. <laughs> Benjamin, would you like to introduce our guest? Um, yeah. Actually, I do. So this gentleman has done everything. And when I say he's done everything, I mean he's done everything. From serving in his country's military to voice acting, to producing, to being an author and a singer. And holy shit, his resume is like some people's rap sheets. Um, (laughs) That was a dig for Rico. But anyway, (laughs) let's welcome Mark Ryan. Yeah. (laughs) What an introduction. How are we all? Uh, Much better. Fantastic. Oh, yeah, doing well, doing well. You Thank forgot you so to much add for Carnegie Hall. Hall. He's even made Carnegie oh, Hall. Hall. Oh, I was, was oh, going to bring that up. I'm just like insane. I, I, I only had a few hours to prepare for this, and I'm like, holy crap. The That's most fun said. one was uh, Hollywood Bowl. Uh, because we were introduced by Robin Williams. 
And oh, Robin, who had been on the wow. tour with us, he kept turning up wherever we were, Robin Williams, and he was just so funny. And uh, we ended up doing a, a one-night gig, a one-night stand at, at Hollywood Bowl. If you imagine what that is like, never mind standing on the stage at Carnegie Hall, standing on the stage at the Hollywood Bowl, being introduced by Robin Williams. So, That's you know. insane. But yeah, he's is. my personal hero. Him and Howard yeah. Stern are like the two people, comedian and interviewer. Right, right. I, but see, those are things I was going to bring up during the show. I'm actually, so the viewers know, I'm actually in the Netherlands. I actually hail from oh. the UK, going to the UK on Monday. But uh, uh, actually, right now, we're on Central European time, so that's why it's midnight. And um, uh, yeah, I'm in the Netherlands right now. So. Oh wow. wow! And then we've got we've got a ton of viewers, and there's questions and comments already popping in everywhere. So let's just let's just start with uh, go ahead, Leo. You can do your thing. Fire away! I, I can't see any questions. There's a thing. I tap. I can see where I can see questions. But if you want to read them, yeah, totally. So Catherine is asking, uh, "Hi, what were your favorite stunts to do in Robin of Sherwood?" Oh, wow. Robin is still, uh, in fact, I'm seeing the boys next week. Uh, we are all still, as we were once described by what the first aid is, you are a right little firm. And by a right little firm in London, if you're a right little firm, it means that you are a, a tight little unit, a, a little tight little unit. And we did all our own stunts. I think I, think I was doubled one, one of the horse stunts where... Um, uh, uh, the stunt coordinator jump off the horse and take this guy off the horse. Um, and the horse that uh, uh, we were using was a, a pole pony called Pringle, which I'd read a lot, I wrote a lot. And anyway, this guy didn't trust his horse. He actually did the jump off this the horse onto this mound and took this other guy. And then Teddy wanted him to roll between the horse's legs, the horse's legs, and he wouldn't, he wouldn't do it. So Teddy said, "I'm not doing that. The horse is going to jump up and down on me." So he said, "Can you can you do that? Can you? Would you roll underneath the horse, come up and do the sword fights?" So I said, "Sure." So I went and talked to Pringle the horse. Sure, no problem. As you do, and said Pringly Wingly because he had a big scar down his nose here because he'd been hit by a polo mallet. And one ear like this, and one ear was like that. But anyway, he, he was he was my mate, and I, so I said to him, uh, "I'm gonna just roll between your legs and just stay still. Hopefully, everything will be fine." I talked to him, and he made a blow on the nose, little nuzzle, and he let me do it. In fact, I think I did it twice. I actually actually ran and rolled, rolled underneath the horse's legs. Came up the side, then took the other guy off the horse. So that's probably one of my favorites. Only because the stuntman used to do it. He was like, I'm not doing that, buddy. Oh, man. Get the actor to do it. We did. We did most of our own. Everybody did. In fact, Ray Winston, on my Ray, he got a stunt adjustment for one, where he actually took one of the stuntmen off in a big fight with, with Jason Connery episode. Interesting episode. Took uh, the stunt guy off the roof onto the the, the crash map himself from about 20 feet and he actually got a stunt just for it as an actor that's that's quite a compliment for the stunt guys to go no i wouldn't do that. No, that's yeah we, we did a lot of that and it was great fun to do robin is still to this day my part of my heart part of my legacy and part of my life how 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 did you even get into acting with your resume before acting 
like you were a private investigator you you you've done uh military service like uh secret ser like not uh, secret service but, uh, special forces yeah special forces yeah. and stuff <laughs> like you're yeah i came later i was actually in yorkshire my dad was a he was social singing and working men's clubs and so i grew up doing shows at school before i uh, was asked to leave and um uh, <laughs> i was making throwing knives in the metalwork room and, and making masterpieces i obviously had a, a propensity for for illegal activities this is absolutely true and uh, i had a used to the, the rooms because i made him in the metal and uh if it hadn't have been for the music industry, I probably would have been somewhere along the line of that business to this day. Uh, but anyway, the music industry came along because I was very musical. I could sing and all that. And uh, I ended up working in what they call the working men's clubs, which was doing, you know, turns in working men's clubs in, in Northern England, which in those days, particularly in Scotland and Wales and the Northeast, if you've ever seen a film uh, called Get Carter, um, that, is northern england that really is what it was like in those days in the 70s and um so that was quite an experience so i was i was always in the music industry and the music industry took me to interesting and strange places i was either singing and carrying my equipment my music and touring doing that kind of thing you know doing songs with the shows but even then i was a bit wacky i was doing things that other people weren't doing you know, MacArthur Park, they work in this club is uh, a little bit, a little bit <laughs> but I was doing that kind of stuff and um, got a reputation for doing these odd things from musicals, you know, exits from the King and I or exits from um, uh, 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 so I was doing these odd um, musical things in a setting that was not when people didn't do that. And so I, I ended up getting invited to go to Zambia uh, and wow. to tour Africa, actually, doing uh, uh, singing this kind of material. And so I ended up in Zambia and Kitwe and Lusaka in the middle of uh, um, uh, a CIA KGB war. And well, you, yeah. meet all kinds of, you meet all kinds of people in, in the 70s in Central Africa. And thereby hangs the rest of the tale. That is crazy. Yeah, I do. Right. I can't imagine what the CIA was doing in uh, Africa, but yeah, that's cool. Well, there was a there was a massive conflict going on in the seventies, and probably it's renewed itself now. Over, uh, for instance, Zambia is one of the biggest copper man. I didn't know this, of course, when I went there. Um, is one of the biggest copper manufacturers in the world. The, the Rokana mine is one of the biggest, other than the man-made hole in Chile that they made. Uh, but the biggest, the biggest man-made holes ever on the face of the planet is in Zambia, where they dig copper. And I still have a piece of it which I brought back with me from Africa. And um, uh, that destabilization, don't forget, apartheid did not crashed at this point in the proceedings. So Zambia was was a borderline state, which was part of the British Commonwealth. It wasn't part of, uh, you know, rule was by the government, but it was still part of the family of the Commonwealth. So the Brits still had a lot of influence there. And obviously it was borderline then with Zimbabwe, which was then Rhodesia. And I remember standing 
on the Zambezi River, uh, the knife edge bridge overlooking the train that goes backwards and forwards, and look over one side into then what was Rhodesia and that is now Zambia. My brain's got dead. Anyway, there I was overlooking that, and the Kovetsi's down was South Africa. So uh, it was quite an interesting time. And uh, for a while, I was based in the Intercontinental Hotel, shout out Intercontinental Hotel, <laughs> in Lusaka, where just about every spook on the face of the planet um, oh. convened. And while I was there, President Podgorny, who was the head of the Presidium of the USSR, was on a, a national visit to Zambia. So uh, the place was crawling with KGB, MI6, CIA, <laughs> everybody. And uh, it was an interesting time in Africa. You see, that's strange how a person like you walks into that. A person like me, I'm like, oh, God, I got to get the hell out of here. <laughs> oh, no, I was fascinated. <laughs> oh no, I would and not only that, the weird thing was that some of the people actually sought me out, I think, because uh, again I was such an odd fish, this musical lunacy that was going on, me doing um West Side Story and stuff like that in the center of Africa. Um people often came up and, and this was part of the issue, not issue in the sense of bad thing, but I think people just wanted to sit and chat about theatre and art and music and, and all writing and all that kind of stuff. And um, I got to talk to some very interesting people. And that's when I got back to the UK, when I got the tap on the shoulder going, um, young man. Because don't forget, I was, this was previous to Dean. This was previous to Evita, which opened in 78. You know, so this was previous to all of that. So um, I've not really been exposed to this mad world out there. I didn't really know what I was to and nor, neither was I particularly worried about it. You know, I, I knew that people were carrying guns. I could see that people were, you know, things strapped on them. And it was, uh, there were rumors of very strange and dangerous and nasty things going on. But I, again, you know, I was a kid in the music industry. I didn't know. Yeah. Right. Wow. And, and folks, that wasn't a movie that he played in. That was real life. Yeah, that, that's real life. <laughs> that's real we life. Haven't that into was the movies yet. That's yeah, we haven't even got into the movies before you get into acting. Wow, that's <laughs> yeah, that's before right. I got into acting. <laughs> now, but I'm you did mention. Um, I, <laughs> it, it, okay, we good. Go for it, All right? Go for it. Go you for mentioned. It. You I did mention Avita, which uh, was. Um, <laughs> I'm going to drive up there and kick you right in your nuts. Um, you mentioned Davida. So how, yeah. how was that? I mean, working with Andrew Lloyd Webber. I mean. Um, when I got back, I think, what well, was it before I went to Africa? When I got, well, before I went to Africa, I what we call Panto here in Manchester, which is a Christmas show, which is, is one of those audience participation things where the, the, the cast interact if you look at my Facebook, uh, not Facebook, um, uh, Instagram, there's a picture of me Captain Hook. And the whole thing about um, Panto is that uh, we could go into the whole drag issue, if you like, but there's a long tradition of male parts in British theatre, male guys playing female parts and female males. There's a whole history going back to Shakespeare. 
of why that was done, whether it was just for convenience or whatever. But there's a whole history of that. And, and one of the um, biggest things of that is, is pantomime, where literally you have the early sisters played by two guys and all that, comedians and all that kind of stuff. And the prince is always played by a beautiful woman and all that kind of stuff. So um, that is something which has been rich theatre tradition for 300 years and it's not going to change no matter what they try in Florida. I can tell you that. That means it part of British culture. Monty is all the guys dressed up and playing and paying that. And you brought up, you know, I've dressed up as a woman for Eric Idle and stood on the stage of Carnegie Hall dressed as one of the most ugliest women you've ever seen in your life, seeing sit on my face and tell me that you love me. <laughs> so, um, yeah, uh, so I ended up, um, there was a singer called Tony Christie, who was a, was a well-known British singer of popular songs, and I was a big fan of his great live act. He was certainly, I thought, was good as Tom Jones, and I've seen Tom Jones live, and actually did a duet with Tom Jones, uh, this whole other story, and um, uh I used to go around basically and steal his act. I used to, I, if, if, if you're going to steal, steal from the best and learn from the best. So I would go around and literally listen to some of the stuff that he did and steal it because he'd do bits of opera. He'd do, again, he'd do musicals, he'd do all these, you know, popular songs. And I used to go around the theatre when we were doing Pants, and I would be singing Tony Christie. In fact, I took the cast to see him do a live performance. And one of the girls that was in the show said to me, there's only one person that can play McGowney. Uh, when it opens in the West End, and it's you because you're such a big Tony Christie fan. Because Tony, the original White Album that was Don't Cry for Me, Argentina, was such a massive hit. Um, and I didn't even really take it in. I didn't know what Evita was. I knew that they'd been a number one in in the UK for months. Literally, Don't Cry for Me, Argentina was a huge massive. Hit. And so when my then manager in London said, "I want you to go and audition for Harold Prince," I was like, didn't know where Prince really was. I knew he was American, he was a big, powerful director, all that kind of stuff. Um, we went along and I sang a version of Old Man River. Old Man River. Old Man River. He just know nothing. He don't say nothing. He keep on rolling. Oh, yeah. He keeps on rolling. And how um, Prince stood up in the middle of this audition when you are my McGowney, your McGowney, right? And so that's how I got the part. So I had four years in the original London cast to be to play McGowney first and then transition mm -hmm. to play Che Guevara. So I had McGowney and Che, which is probably one of the greatest parts for somebody like me of that age to play in the West End show and hit West End show. I went and stole Mandy Bertinkin's act he actually flew me to New York to sit down and take notes from Mandy Patinkin's performance oh, of Shed. Wow. And that's what I took back to the UK. I was told to do that by Harold Prince, and so I did. And you I kind of pinch yourself to make sure you're awake. <laughs> do you ever pinch yourself to make sure you're awake through all this? This is amazing. Your life um, is just wow. I have a, a, a weird philosophy. I've been asked about it before, and it, if you don't, it's just really about quantum mechanics, physics. Observing the particle changes the particle. 
So uh, if you're not living your dream, you're living somebody else's nightmare. So create your own waveform, create your own possibilities and probabilities. And this is a true story. We were sat around one night, Jason Connery, uh, Ray Winston, just to name drop a few, uh, a clammy mantle, and we were talking about why we've done what you just said. How did that, what's the mechanics of how that works? And Ray said something, I totally credit him every time I say it because it's true. He said, um, I said, God, we've been lucky. And he went, Malky, you create your own luck. You, you've got to create your own luck. And I went, yeah, but when you think of all the barriers that are in the way of doing things that you want to do, you know, getting over them, round them through, whatever, he said, yeah, he said, but Malky, we didn't even know the barriers were there. For us, they didn't exist. So he went straight through them. And it took me about a week after he said that, sitting in the car, driving around, and doing what I was doing. And I would go back to him and go, how much of that is true in my own life? There was, was I not aware? And there's a certain element of the, of the element of the fall in tarot, the idea of stepping off the cliff without, with trust and just walking into the situation. And somehow the universe, if it is conscious, and I believe that there's an element of consciousness in the universe, reacts to you creating that waveform. It's physics. You create a new possibility. And the universe doesn't know quite how to deal with it. So it goes, oh, let's see how far this idiot can go. Let's just <laughs> let's see how far it can go. And um, uh, I've, that's been my philosophy because I've been able to express it in the last few years. But I didn't know it when I was younger. I just did it. And um, that, I've been often, somebody said to me about the whole thing from Apocalypse Now, Kilgore, about that weird light. I said, you've got that weird light, dude. You, you're going to be fine. Whatever you do, you know. And I, when I think back, I go, Shit, I sh that was stupid and dangerous. And without, I mean, I should not have done that and walked away. And um, I didn't know why. And I've often said to myself, I should have been, you know, something should have happened. I should have been, you know, in hospital before now. I've walked away several times. And uh, I think the whole thing of, of almost creating that essence of um, just the, the, in um, Lawrence of Arabia, the whole thing about Lawrence creating his own writing, he has the writing, he still has the writing. And in that, uh, the culture, the, the idea that you are writing your own destiny and that God allows you to do that because write your own destiny, go with it. And there's a great quote, which I'll get wrong, but I'll probably um, uh, I'll misquote it, but it's about the, the dangerous men and the men that dream when they're awake because they actually make their dreams a reality. And... Uh, I don't know, there's something about that. There's something about stepping into the void and letting the void, trusting the void and letting it bring stuff to you. So anyway, that's been my philosophy for the last few years. I did that. I did that once, step into the void, but I was drinking at the time. It didn't turn out well. <laughs> <laughs> I've done the same thing. Yeah, you know, <laughs> yes, I've certainly had adventures skiing which what well, some of the famous stories about skiing while drunk and again <laughs> why i've not broken 
It seems like such a. Well, why would you do it sober? Yeah. That's what I want to know. That's why would you exactly? <laughs> why would you build yourself down a mountain? In in uh, a bunch of pals and I went went skiing, but again, the being Brits, of course, and being France, you get utterly blotto, and we went what's called poubelle which is you wrap yourself in a black plastic bin liner and throw yourself down the black run. Oh, my mountain. God. Wow. <laughs> that, that sounds like skiing. It's, it's like <laughs> on your ass and about you know 50 miles an hour. And hopefully you don't meet a tree. And um, I'm, I actually met a construction site and uh, uh, where they were actually had rebar bits of... Everybody had some kind of injury, but I ended up with a piece of rebar sort of sticking through my thigh. So Ooh. you know, but it was cold, so I didn't feel it. It was it was okay. <laughs> uh, we had several yeah, questions come in. Uh, I'm going to try to get to them as best as I can. So if I don't get a chance to get to your question, I, I'm I'm totally sorry, but I'll make sure we we try at least. So Catherine is asking, what sort of fun did you have on the different sets with pranks? Wow. We actually, particularly on Robin, we did a lot of pranks. Now, it, it's calmed down a lot these days because the money involved is so huge. People are so worried about being fired for, for doing things. They, they, don't, they don't do it anymore. But on, on Robin, we sometimes have set up a prank that would take literally weeks, weeks to set up. And Stevie Dent, the now world-famous stunt coordinator, who's done amazing work on a lot of things, he was our original horse master. Um, and Steve was... was uh, but he was just beginning that whole thing then in 1983. Uh, so um, we set up this prank, and all stuntmen, Love to set themselves on fire, throw themselves off of buildings, hang off of airplanes, you know, all kinds of stuff like that, you know, swim in the bottom of lakes, you know what I mean? Whatever. They love doing that shit, but they hate speaking dialogue in front of them. You ask them, oh, terrifies them. The idea that you actually have to say a line on camera in a scene, you see them go white. The blood drains from and then he goes, and so we set up a prank with Steve where um, they actually wrote a scene into a script for an episode. This is absolutely true. This would not happen. They wrote a scene into an episode, and we needed something to be hanging from a tree upside down, suspended from a tree. And this was a Norman guy, and he had dialogue. And the director, God bless him, Ian Sharp. They dragged this out for weeks. And finally, as we're getting closer to the film day, um, Ian said, you've got to ask somebody to do one of your stunt boys. He said, completely, completely settled. And uh, so he went to Steve and he said, Steve, you're going to have to do this scene hanging from a tree upside down. This is more of the guard. And you've got this diamond. Well, you should, I thought Steve was going to just melt into a... <laughs> <laughs> What? He said, no, you've got to say these things. And we gave him the lines and said, you've got, you've got to say this. It was something like, Egbert, Egbert, are you there? Cuckoo, cuckoo. Because he was pretending to be in a tree, right? <laughs> of course. Actually, the day we shot it was the day of his birthday. Oh. 
So we actually had the horse monster hanging from a tree, upside down, terrified about having to do dialogue, and having to say the lines, Egbert, Egbert, cuckoo, cuckoo, while we filmed it. And as he was hanging upside down from the tree, they brought out the birthday cake from the gods and cake and all that kind of thing. So uh, we played massive jokes on each other. And, and Michael, during Transformers, does the same thing. And I have to say, he's pulled a few strokes on people. He's had us all going at one point, you know. Uh, so it does happen. If nowadays it's got to be a Michael Bay character that does it, which you get away with it. But there's not a lot of, of, of that goes on much more because of the money. You know what I mean? The idea that you are. Um, do, you think, uh, do you think COVID had anything to do with that, where the change happened because it costs so much more to get the films together, people getting them all together, get made and stuff? Do you think because people became more focused on that it made no, it... it changed before it changed oh, before. Yeah. It, it, it was really the move from producer writer director to showrunner where the mm. show became the king of the set and they had control of the set and um to the point where you know usually the writer showrunner such can change the line just on what he said and sometimes that's a good thing you know sometimes from the big successful shows where the guy that wrote the book or the lady that wrote the book you know, like mm -hmm. has artistic control so what they say um and robin and other shows that i worked on previous to that you were you were allowed to put more into it in fact robin i would say was a success because of the group think and for instance again it's history but it's true the man that wrote it, Richard Carpenter, was one of the probably one of the best British writers in British television. When I actually was going to be Edmund the Archer, but I transitioned from being Edmund the Archer to being Nazi the Saracen uh, in literally the first day of shooting. Um, uh, Ian came up to me and said, um, "We're no longer Edmund the Archer; you're Nazi the Saracen. Can you do a sword fight?" I said, "Yeah, how have I got?" He said, "About half an hour." I said, "Yeah." He said, "You actually got a week." Okay, but I, I said yes. You see, as I invited the universe, I said, you know, <laughs> and um, so I transitioned to being Nazir the Saracen. But the writer that wrote the entire show, that decision was made, and he called me. This wouldn't happen today. A writer calling an actor and going, "Uh, any ideas?" I have no idea what we're going to do with the characters. It's, we didn't plan this. So Nazir, the guy that killed people on our British family viewing in the UK, we don't, I don't have no idea. What have you, what can you, have you got any suggestions? And I said, well, I've just finished reading Sir Stephen Runciman's History of Crusades, the three volumes by Sir Stephen Runciman, which are the textbook about the history of the Crusades. That in there, there's an interesting relationship between the Knights Templar and the cult of the assassins, the assassins, whose name is tied from Hashishiyun. Hashish. So um, that all comes from that. And I said the interesting thing about the Knights Templar and the Hashishiyuns, the assassins, was they had a very similar spiritual belief system. And also they were into the medical side of it, we were hospital, hospital nights. 
and uh, Astrolabe, which was the, the thing that made sure the British Navy conquered the world's oceans with, all came from that influence. And so um, the uh, that we talked about that kid in mind. He said, "But I've got no dialogue. For you. I'm going to write dialogue." And I said, "Don't give me the dialogue. Don't eat you. School acting. Give me the action. Give me the knife throwing, the sword fights, the horses, the tracking, all of that stuff. Give me the medical stuff. You know, fixing those wounds and all that kind of stuff. Give me that, and I will. The character will speak through what he does, not through what he says." And so for three years of my life, we, I played a character that spoke very few lies. So I went from playing Che Guevara. We did a film called Who Days Wins about the Iranian embassy siege with about the SAS and about the uh, raid of the Iranian embassy siege. And I went from that character doing a film and singing Che Guevara to a character that spoke, I think, six lines in the entire three years of the series, but is still one of the iconic it is probably one of the most memorable of of your act uh your characters yeah and from the show yeah thank you it was delight to play and i mean i grew up playing in i grew up hiding in the major rope as a child my family three generations back played in sherwood forest there's pictures of my mother and my grandmother, and my particularly the women, I call it the women of Sherwood, but there's a picture of my like three generations of women at the Major Oak, which then as kids, we used to play with Robin Hood, and the tree is so big, you can actually get inside it. And so, well, you can't anymore, they've stopped it because people have set fire to it because they're stupid. And um, so I grew up in that environment absorbed the Celtic history, the Roman history, the Norman history. You just do, whether you like it or not, kidding, if you're not interested, mm -hmm. you just hear it. And so it becomes a part of your personality. And um, uh, so Robin, to me, is still one of the most interesting. That's why we just did so long. I've written three books about the psychology of television, the imagery, the imagery. So, Sherwood Oracle is the new one that's out this year. It's starting the new one. Man. And where can they find out all about that stuff, Leo? Well, if you check the show notes up above or down below, depending on where you're watching or listening to us, you can find all that information about our awesome guests. We had uh, some more comments and questions come in. Tristan is asking, what are some of your favorite hobbies to do now? Hobbies to do? How do you have time to do hobbies? But like, <laughs> right? With a two-year-old, one of your hobbies. So, yeah, well, that, that used to be one of my hobbies. Uh, we have a two-year-old. Um, uh, <laughs> we we have a little boat here, which is on the Frisian Lakes. I'm actually speaking to you. If you've ever heard of Frisian Frisian uh, cows, I'm actually in Frisia, which is the northern part of the Netherlands. Oh, this is the, the lakes of so we're actually, you know, in the lakes of the Netherlands, which is the northern part of uh, 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 Dutch, you know, territory and so Netherlands. And um, uh, we have a little boat here, and that's become kind of my um, uh, a place of refuge <laughs> where I <laughs> hide <laughs> and um. That's so. That's that's a hobby. 
but I've, I, I don't really think of them as hobbies. I think they're more kind of just um, weird interests. I, I don't get as much chance to read. I, I was an avid, mad reader. So, you know, I would consume books on a weekly level. I, I've stopped doing that over the last few years, I guess because of social media and all that kind of stuff. So um, that is now uh, has moved slightly aside. And I used to go mountaineering a lot myself into mountain ranges and stuff like that. And we still camp, you know, we're still talking about camping expeditions in Normandy. Um, I'm a bit of a second world history buff, so, you know, I like going visiting the backgrounds of, of, of um, in particular beaches and places like that, um, with Normandy and, and um, all over, really. So I'm a bit of a history buff, so that's one of the things I have to do. Um, you know, when I've got, when I've got to. Exactly. But a moment. What? It, it, it just got quiet. <laughs> Everybody well, was just I, got, like, I, I was going to let other people ask questions, but I got a million. Yeah, Leo, you haven't asked anything. Go. I know Leo's got a bunch of questions. I see him. Well, uh, I want to make sure we get to the questions in the uh, chat. Uh, so Rico's asking, what was the most challenging part of playing uh, Bumblebee whenever we get to that part? Uh, well, pretty much so any of the Why don't you get us to that part then? Yeah, I'm working on it right now. Leo is a Transformer nerd, so like he, oh, he's really yeah. excited about this. <laughs> well, uh, please, go on. Uh, is that the end of the question? You want to ask me how that all came about? I'm happy to talk about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I know you played uh, many more voices uh, other than Bumblebee. Uh, you did both the games and the movies as well. Uh, yep. Yeah, how did all that how did you fall into the, the, uh, the Transformers lore? Like know uh starting with um uh the first movie there it seems like you've been in everything with uh with I, did all, all five, I was on the set of all five of those films as the onset robot working with the actors francis mcdormand you name it you know anthony hopkins everybody and so when they're actually what, what are the lessons they learned from the star wars productions the first ones that uh, was if you stick a screen green screen in front of people with nobody there to stay sight and stay the lights, it doesn't work. Uh, you have to have a live response for an act to work against to bring out a performance. Otherwise, it's just saying the lines is dead. And so Michael learned that lesson, I think, from Steven Spielberg. He said, you know, get a body that can actually do these lines with um, the actors on set and uh, go to CGI because we can build robots. We actually did build one robot. The actual Bumblebee robot was built by Matemo. Um, and he's 17 feet tall and he weighs two tons, which means that he, he took a long time moving around the set. But there is actually a Bumblebee robot, which is at Paramount Studios in Los Angeles. And so um, uh, how it happened was I did a film called King Arthur, uh, with Antoine Fuqua directing, and I was the swordmaster and fight director. And yeah. the lessons when anybody asks me about, you know, have you got any advice for us, is do uh, is do every job, do every job on the set, learn everything that you can, because it's all going to come in useful. So when I did first night with Sean Connery and Richard Gere and all that kind of stuff, I worked with Bob Anderson, the swordmaster who did Princess Bride and, and, and Islander. And, all those sorrow and i learned so much from him be, being behind the camera about how you manage that size of a production 
And so when we got to King Arthur, we had Kieran Lee, Mads Mikkelsen, you know, we, we had a, an amazing, an amazing cast. And I was working closely with all of them, but I wasn't in front of the camera. And you kind of put your that head on, you become so massive. And, but you're dealing with a multitude of, of skills, cameras, sound, lighting, special effects, you know, all of that kind of stuff you have to carry with you onto the set and your ability to use that. And particularly working with a director like Antoine Fuqua, you know, he used to come to me some mornings and go, what would you like to shoot? What, what, what have we got ready? What kind of everything, whatever you want to shoot. If you've got a problem with the light, the weather, whatever. And so that ability to be able to multitask on a $130 million film is uh, kind of kind of useful. When I got to, uh, and it was produced by um, uh, Jerry Brooker. So I think by the time I got to LA, uh, back to LA, um, and I got asked about this job, um, about my agent called me and said, um, you know, we need to take for something to do some stuff. Um, but I can't tell you what the project is. And I said, well, how am I supposed to know? He said, we're going to send you some lines, just do the lines, and you're going to go in for a meeting, just just, just go with it, right? See that thing about walking into the void. And I said, sure. So I recorded these lines, five different robots at the same time, or five different voices. I didn't really understand what they were at the time because they changed the names, changed the whole scene, and got as well. So I went in, did it, got a and uh, my agent called me and said, okay, Michael, play what's your And I said, who's, what, wait, wait. So, um, it's Michael Bay. The news in his Transformers, the interesting news is it's Michael Bay. And I have to say, from the very first moment working with Michael, I did not have a problem. I did not have a problem with him. He's very fast. I'll tell you this quick story. I'm sure that Sir Anthony Hopkins, for Tony, won't mind me telling the story because it's good. There's one morning on the set of the film, um, and if anybody's word is good, it's got to be Anthony Hopkins, right? He came to me and he said, um, Mark, see, how many of these have you done? I said, I said, this is my fifth one. He said, well, I've worked with a few directors. I said, I, I forget. He must have worked. He was the few directors. He said, I've never seen anybody do what Michael can do. And I said, what do you mean? He said, Michael can pick up anything on this set, any camera, lighting equipment, you name it. He knows this set. He knows everybody's job better than most people on the set that they've had to do the job. Special effects, stunts, whatever. Michael knows it all intimately in detail. He knows exactly what he wants. So I've never seen anybody pick up a camera, go to a camera, use this, adjust that, do it on the set the way that Michael Bay. He said he really is a genius. I said, he is a genius. I said, but I know he doesn't get the credit for that, but I said, it's, and I then went on to explain to him, I said, he came to me the very first day we were shooting, and he showed me the animatic. And the very first scene that we shot was the scene at the Whitwicky household where the, the cast turned into robot and then they're hiding it. But in, in those days, we didn't have full blown CGI stuff. They were listening, they were line drawing where the robots were supposed to be. And I've got one of those odd brains. And he said, come look at this. So he showed me the animatic rendering of what the scene was supposed to be. 
with the robots hiding under the house. And I laughed. And he looked at me and said, can you see that? I said, yeah, I get it. You got giant alien robots hiding under house in LA. I said, it's funny, it's great. I said, that's what you want me to do. He went, yeah, can you, you sure? I said, yeah, yeah, no problem. Went, Let's go. And that's how it was for a decade. Everything, nice. everything was two years after. So five years, I, I could see what he wanted to do, what he was trying to achieve, and, and we did it. And we did it with some of the best actors in the world, John Turturro, you know what I mean? He, he, these guys, they're demanding, he's Stanley Tucci, you know what I mean? He's doing dialogue with them, and he was stood there behind a camera or hidden under a table or a ladder, doing dialogue with them. It was a fantastic honor to be able to do that on the set. And that's Peter Cullen, if you're a Transformers fan, in the set one day. And he was sitting with me because he was on his way down to San Diego shooting. And he was sat next to me and he said, he was watching me running around the set because I'm wired for sound, I've got on the microphone, strapped everywhere you can imagine. And he said, um, he said, I couldn't do what you're doing. I don't even understand that. how you're doing what you're doing. How do you know what's coming next? I said, because I'm cheating a bit. I said, I've got the sound guys and vibe so I can hear what you're doing on the set so I know what bit of paper to look at next to go and do stuff. And then the timing of the special effects and the camera moves and all that kind of stuff. I said, it's just all of that experience I got from First Night and King Arthur, understanding the mechanics of the big set came in when it came to working with Michael because I understood how that worked. And um, so there we go, 10 years, five films. That's well, yeah. <laughs> 10 years. That's, that's you know, a I nice love the way he said it. He's like, 10 years, five films. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 So, yeah. with, with you, you've written comic books, uh, uh, autobiographies, and, and tarot books, which kind of caught me off guard. What What's the fascination with tarot? I first got into trying to understand the mechanics of tarot, um, I guess, during Evita, actually, probably my first trip to Los Angeles to the published stream bookstore, isn't there now. And um, there was all this tarot material. Tarot is a, a mechanism for, there's no magic in tarot. The magic's in here, right? And so um, uh, but what tarot does, because it's um, uh, Jungian in in, in its nature is that it you get an emotional response to the imagery whether you like it or not they uh, like it or not as human beings we grow up with the sun going up and then the moon coming up and then the sun going down we deal with those natural um our five senses so um the imagery is designed to provoke an emotional response so analytical kind of and you look at an image and go, oh, you get an, an emotional response to it. And um, on, on a simple level, what Tarot does is it's, it kind of puts them into the compartment of elements in human experience. So, for instance, um, uh, whether it's to do with heat, sun, food, you know, water, shelter, fire and food, basically the ultimate survival, if you've ever read Lofty Wise book, uh, the SAS Survival Handbook, and I was very lucky to talk about it. Um, those are the elements water, shelter, fire, and food. 
And so those are the elements that all human beings relate to that emotion because they're parts of how we survive. And tarot is the same. The imagery itself is designed to provoke an emotional response. Now, mm -hmm. I personally don't believe in telling the future with tarot. What tarot does, it gives you a snapshot of the way that you are reacting to a question. When I read for people, I don't even want to know what the question is. I'm not interested in the questions in a way. I just read for them the way that the cards play out because there's another element uh, which is uh, to do with synchronicity, which sometimes when you ask a question uh, of the tarot, I plug my computer and just going back into that. Um, uh, if you ask a question of the universe, will give you a response whether you like it or not. And it's again, it's the idea of creating a void by asking a question you create. And the universe doesn't like voids, so it will bring you an answer whether you like it or not. <laughs> You're going to get a response. And so tarot is kind of like one of those psychological triggering devices. And I found that fascinating. The only thing I didn't and couldn't get early on in my early readings into this was uh, I couldn't get Kabbalah, which a lot of the Renaissance Kabbalah in the decks were based on Kabbalah. So I, I, I don't speak Kabbalah. Um, I do speak Wheel of the Year, which was the ancient northern tradition of how they view like the built stone ends for some reason, um, of studying how the seasons change and animals change and how the, the, the environment changes. So um, we probably, myself and Jessica Potter, wrote the first book, Tarot System, based on the Wheel of the Year, called the Wheel of Tarot. And that, again, the rest is this kind of changed Tarot. So it was the first deck that actually went, let's strip out Kabbalah, because it confuses people, and let's go back to the origins of uh, a lot of, for instance, the festivals like Easter. It's got nothing to do with Christianity zero christmas zero it's about the coming of the new year and the solstice the shortest day the longest days how the animals react to the environment so a lot of those um things we celebrate like easter and even christmas lots of other things were originally pagan festivals got nothing to do with any kind of religion whatsoever it's all to do with how people related to the environment and the messages that they took from the environment, whether it was the animals that were going out of hibernation, um, or uh, the way they had to prepare for the, the winter months. So that's that's what fascinated me. So the, the tarot is nothing like Pokemon, is what you're saying. <laughs> it's not like Pokemon. Because I've been trying no. to collect all, because every time I collect them all, they come out with another deck. <laughs> horrible. That's, that is now, I understand where you're going with that, uh, <laughs> and I see I see your point. Um, because how can you keep writing something which is supposed to be, you know, eternally true? Well, the interesting thing is, particularly about tarot, it's a very personal. So um, the first deck I bought was called the Rider Waite deck, which is kind of one of the universal bestsellers and funny enough, Wildwood tarot, which I wrote with John Matthews. Uh, uh, will um, it's probably one of the third or the fourth best-selling tarot decks in history. Um, the one I bought after that, which I was recommended, I could not understand it at all. It was Jewish to me. It literally, I looked at it and went, 
utter chaos. I don't understand what I even bought this for. So um, it's very personal how you react to the imagery and the concept. But that is why Wildwood is so successful, I think, is because it's A, it's accessible. The artwork is not too esoteric and too complex. You actually can look at it and go, oh, I get what that's talking about. I understand what that kind okay. of means for a lot of people. Okay. Pokemon, I'm not so sure I've ever got Pokemon. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but I ever would. So, you know. Well, I, I, I'm not a, uh, a big collector anymore because I just can't afford any more cards. So. <laughs> I just, I'm not, <laughs> what do you do with cards? But can you tell the, uh, the future with Pokemon cards? Probably. Well, if, you draw, if you keep drawing Pikachu, yeah. <laughs> It's shocking. <laughs> it is shocking. Yeah. Oh my God. It was also a way for, uh, particularly in the Renaissance, to encode within the imagery things were not acceptable to the church. That was the other thing that within the cards, this whole concept of what we just talked about pagan religions, pre Christian religions, um, being able to preserve their what they saw as being spiritual to them. Yeah. For instance, in Yorkshire, there's a whole series of massive abbeys, Revo Abbey, um, various other places that you can go and visit. And one of the places that um, uh, I used to spend a lot of time with was, I think it was at Revo. They have on the outside of the shoulder of the tree to the actual, it was a Cistercian monastery, obviously it was wiped out by Henry VIII during the, the Reformation. So, the, the, you know, the places were you know, looted and robbed. Down. So, but these actual remnants of these massive Cistercian monasteries they built in Yorkshire, again to do with the Knights Templar and why York was the centre of all of this and not London, because the Exchequer was kept in York. So, at the time of the um, Crusades, the Knights Templar, one of their central points of power in York, was not in Scotland, nowhere else in York. And around York, there were nine, nine Knights Templar preceptors, most of which I've visited. So um, that, it was about the money and how this money was shipped backwards and forwards from uh, the Crusade. And around there, there are these massive places. And one of those places, which is now a ruin, um, on this, the right-hand transept of the actual abbey, on the outside of that is the biggest green man figure, if you know what a green man figure is. The foliate face figure with the beard that turns into you know greenery and mouth is got foliate leaves coming out of their mouths and their yeah ears. John Connery played that part yeah yeah he played the green knight which there's a whole story about that in the book but that's the whole thing and uh, so on the outside of the church he is the green man he is the spirit of human nature in 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 the wild if you like in the woods in oh, the forest in as you go inside the church, he the, the beard goes into the church, comes into the church. On the inside of the church, he turns into an angel. So the oh. green man, the demons of the old religions become the gods of the next. So he's outside the church as a green man. As he flows through the window and his beard and his foliage bends inside, he becomes an angel holding a book which has got psalms and dates. Stuff on it. Oh, I didn't know that. Yep. So, Leo, any more so questions? So we've got about five minutes left. Oh, why wow, is that all? 
Yeah, we got about Yo, five minutes left. You know, I'm, I'm old Jack too. Remember, I didn't even ask him about Digimon yet. What the hell? <laughs> yeah. He's not we Pokemon. went from Pokemon to Digimon. Are they not bred? <laughs> Have they not got an offspring now? Digimon Pokemon. I use references I know. I'm sorry. Oh. Uh, <laughs> Let's ask some of the questions that the people are written into because I'm sure they've got something like, why are you not in prison? Things like that. <laughs> that is a good question. No. Um, but I, I've always wondered has there been any roles that you've, like, you've turned down? A lot of people ask that you regret, but that you turned down and you turned back and been like, you know what, I'm glad I didn't take that role on. And if I had, if I would have missed out on these opportunities here. Um, no, I've, I've left a couple of productions because I didn't feel comfortable um, or, or I, I didn't feel I could do my best work in the environment that I was in. Let's put it that way. And, um, and voluntarily, usually sat down with the director and gone, this is not working. And it's usually a theatrical. Um, after playing Shea for two years, uh, you, you know, one of my dreams was to play that kind of character, create that kind of character on stage. Yeah. And so after doing that for two years, you kind of, you, you can't do stuff less than that. That sounds weird. Uh, and there's been a couple of occasions where I've, I, I got signed up to do a show or something, and it was just... I didn't get the buzz, you know, I didn't get the vibe. And so I've gone to the director and gone, it's not working. And they would usually go, you're right. Mm. <laughs> Off you go, we'll find somebody else who can do it or want us to do it or whatever. Um, but really, no, I have no regrets of any of that at all. None. I mean, extremely fortunate. I can't tell you how, when people, fans come up to me, conventions and stuff like that, you know, I go, well, I'm a fan. I grew up with a man from Uncle. I grew up with Land of the Giants. I grew up watching those shows as a kid. You know what I mean? I, 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 I you know, go up to people at conventions that are there from those shows and go, I watched your show. You know what I mean? I, I loved it as a kid. So um, I met Adam West. I met Batman. You know what I mean? That, that kind of yeah. stuff. That kind of stuff. Yeah. And so, no, I, I'm incredibly fortunate to have been, as Ray would say, not lucky. Uh, we created our own look, I guess, and didn't see the barriers. Uh, so, no, I'm no regrets. Nice. Well, it had to be great meeting Adam yeah. West, the original Batman. I mean, it had to be awesome. So, because I remember watching the TV show at the time, and it was like, it was great. I watch it now, and I was like, how did would how was I entertained uh, by that? Because it was just uh, uh, how were you not entertained? I didn't realize everything was called bat, like the, the bat jump rope and all that stuff. So, Poke bat. No, that's <laughs> isn't it? Something like, no, I don't know. It's something they don't go. Poke bat? No. Well, we have one final question that came in. Uh, Tristan was asking, what would you uh, give for advice for another aspiring actor? Uh, like I said earlier on, learn it all. Learn Take it. any job, whether it's first assistant, second assistant, coffee maker, 
whatever, I did the same. I was an extra in Yorkshire on various shows when I was working the clubs. I learned how a set worked. First director, second director, you know, all of that producer. I learned all of those relationships from being an extra. And uh, take any job that you're offered, do it well, do it full blown, do it with passion, do it as best as your ability and learn eclectically from everything on the set because I'm living proof that what you learn on... I used to have actors on first year, almost, on nine months, anyway. Sword fighting with Richard, you know, getting what to speak on. And I had actors coming to me going, why are you doing this? And I tried to explain to them, I'm learning more back here, watching how they deal with you, than I would ever do as an actor, because you don't, half the time as an actor, you're not even aware what's going on behind the camera. Advice to do every job that you can on a set and uh, take every job that you're offered and learn from it and then apply what you learn to the next job. Um, and uh, hopefully one day you will get that opportunity where Hal Prince says, or somebody, by the way, says, you're hired and um, just keep going. The job is about rejection. Back to working yeah. in the creative business. It's it's a world of pain. It literally is about being able to um, survive rejection every day. And, so it's like dating. Uh, hmm. so like <laughs> a bit like what? A bit like dating. I like I keep dating. Dating. Uh, dating, dating, dating. Yes. Yeah, you know, some people are yeah. just, just. You know what I mean? So, um, but I'm sure that you get lots of late throwing themselves at you. You know what I mean? Wanting to discuss with you the future of the world and stuff. You know, they mostly throw rocks. Dating until the right one, you know, actually finds you um, sometimes. I thought I was enunciating. I didn't realize. No, it's to do with the sound. So, you know. Oh, okay. Yeah, you're you're coming in a little low, Eric, but it's uh, nothing major. Um, but uh, Ben, was there anything else before we wrap it? We with his resume, I could be here for another four friggin' hours. Oh yeah, I, I mean we, we didn't I even mean, touch on like I mean Jaja's over there going, dude, but we didn't even talk about black sales. Or what's going yeah. on? That's true. Uh, yeah. Black sales. You have to ask him to come back. Is what you're gonna have to do. Come back. So go ahead. I'm gonna I'm gonna let Jaja have one last question. Oh, and I then we'll wrap it up. Yeah, because well, I know you were really excited about Black Sales. So, well, Black give, Sales is all, but like, I really want to know about the private investigating stuff. What, what, what? Anything crazy? Were you doing it for divorces? Where private your PI days? What was that all about? I didn't really do that kind of work. Um, oh, on a note, um, no, I was a member of the British Army's Intelligence Corps, and. Uh, ended up being attached to the UK Special Forces, which included the SBS, which is like your US Navy SEALs, and um, the SAS, which is like your Delta Force slash Green Boys. 
uh, and um, got into some interesting and strange. But I, I specialised in human interviews um, because it was the most most natural as an actor, eh? because that's one of the reasons why they asked me to come and play. Um, they could become other people. And I'm going to have what I say now because I have been other people in other places. <laughs> and we don't need to know where that was or how that was, all that kind of stuff. And this leads back to the UAP thing. Because um, uh, I signatory to the Official Secrets Act about four or five times. And I was also uh, signed to what's called a Special Forces contract, which is a media contract. And so there's certain things I can say, certain things I can't say. And having seen what they will do to people who step over that line, I'm very wary of that. I have a nice life. I have a happy life. I, you know, <laughs> I, I write books on tarot and stuff like that, right? So I, I don't need any. <laughs> and um, I, when I left and went to America uh, in 96, I, I had a very high security clearance, probably as high as anybody that you're ever probably going to get on this show or any other show to be honest with you and um it's very expensive and it's very serious and you're given the big finger warning uh about what you can and cannot and who they want you to go and work with so they wanted me to, when i moved to america they wanted me to go and work with the american unit so i actually volunteered for the american army but because i wasn't then an american citizen I couldn't actually officially join the American military. I was what called a long hiding, which means that, you know, you go to units, you work with them, train with them and all that kind of stuff, but you're not officially a member of the American military. But I'd worked with the American military a lot in Europe and other places. So it wasn't that strange. I knew what an M16 was, you know me. So um, there was certain things about that. And then... When 9-11 came, I was actually doing a, a musical called 1776 in, in L.A. with um, Roger Reese. We were actually doing 1776, and I was playing John Dickinson. And it happened, 9-11 uh, happened the second week of our uh, of the show's opening in Los Angeles, and I actually called the British, the English, British Embassy in, in Washington because there wasn't a military attaché in L.A. and volunteered. And um, there's a way of identifying yourself so they know who you are really and what your background is. And if they want you, they'll find you. And so I called and I let them know how to contact me and stuff like that. And I ended up being contacted by some folks and said, um, we could probably use you to do some stuff. I said, sure, training, whatever. Because by that point, I'm, you know, I'm an old man. You know what I mean? I'm not yeah. 32. Oh, yeah. Yes, as you know, you know, all these injuries finally catch up with you, which money you can no longer, you know, jump out. <laughs> and so um, uh, that led me into being given a license, a private investigator's license, where they said, you're going to have to have this because some of the work that you're going to do is going to bring you into situations where you will need some form of protection. So I ended up having a, a PI license in California for 15 years um, uh, where uh, I would, again, walk in these situations. Sometimes, again, I have to be careful what I say for lots of different reasons. 
multiple homicide situations. Mm -hmm. Can't say it more seriously than that, okay? Yeah. People who are extremely dangerous and would harm you if they could. And so I have, been, and obviously I'm still here, so um, that has served me well over the last few years. And I've walked into those situations on multiple, multiple occasions and, and got away with it. Um, and usually helped solve uh, some issue or a crime. Um, out of all of that, I'll tell you one experience because it's, 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 I won't go into the whole details of it, but it was a multiple homicide situation uh, of foreign nationals in California. Let's put it that way, that narrows it down. And um, I was asked to come and give my opinion on this because the uh, a federal agency, let's put it this way, um, had couldn't, there was no solving this riddle, what had actually happened. So Numnut here, the, the, the right brain, you know, was asked to come and look at it. And I'll never forget this. I actually was looking at a map, California, Nevada, whatever. And they said, where do you think, what happened? And where do you think these, these people are? And without even thinking about it, I went on the map. My finger on the map said, they're there. And... Um, looked at me and I went, don't know why. Um, anyway, about six weeks later, after we driving to Las Vegas and various other places around Nevada and all over some America, um, southwestern America anyway, we worked out what had happened. And I happened to find the one piece of evidence. Uh, I asked for it and I was handed it because they didn't know the significance of it. And so I was handed this one piece of evidence that was the key to the whole thing. So we ended up going to this federal agency's offices on Wilshire Boulevard and, and, and explaining with other people from a foreign country what had actually happened and why the federal agency had got it wrong. This is what was happened and these were the people involved. And as I was coming out of the office, I mean, if you can imagine, just a brief a federal agency on and then telling them and by the way you're wrong this is what happened um did and they took that uh, as i was coming out the mother of one of the victims shot across where we were as i was leaving the office and grabbed me by the arm and said you know where my son is i can look at you I know that you know where my son is. And I looked at her and she literally was gripping over my arm. And I didn't know what to say because we'd just come out of this meeting. And uh, she said, why don't, why don't you I said, I can't tell you because we don't know yet the case. I'm going to ask you a question. Sure. Go ahead. Answer I will. He said, I want you to return my son's body back to this country. Can you, can you promise me to do that? And I said, I will do my utter best on my oath. You have my word that we will try and resolve this. 
And she went, thank you. And about two months after that, the case was resolved and the, the bodies were found that they were returned to their home. So, you know, um, so that was the kind of job I did. It wasn't chasing around Erin and No. <laughs> Very different from what I had in my head. There, there is the odd humorous, trust me, story, but that's whole that's a whole episode. <laughs> an hour about people that I've worked with in, in that whole world uh, of particularly working with the Native American Indians. I spent almost three years of my life working with the Native American Indians on the reservation because, you know, it, 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 and that is fascinating. I love, I love the Native Americans. They're fantastic. <laughs> they are completely. Yeah. Um, again, they've got the same philosophy. So, you know, I spent three years of my life, the 15, involved with that universe. So, hey. Yeah, I was, I was. Like I said, we could sit here for another two hours. Well, that's true. Yeah. Go well, ahead, you Eric, know I'll what? Let that... you, and then Leo's going to wrap it up. Yep. Okay. Go ahead, I was just really, <laughs> yeah, I was just really amazed by that uh, story about your. In Washington and everything, there. I'm just. Uh, I was glad you weren't working for the Clintons, so that was good. So. <laughs> I'm more, I've given up on American politics. Trust me. Like, yeah, me too. Uh, me too. Yeah, that's why I joke. A spy movie is more believable than the politics right now. So, yeah. Right. <laughs> so, I know Leo's got another show. City on the hill. The rest of the world is looking at you, going, You are the shining city on the hill. However, you <laughs> think that, trust me, I'm an adopted American, I'm an American citizen. Trust me, and I've lived and worked all over America. The rest of the world looks at you and goes, America is still the foundation of democracy around the world that must be preserved and protected at all costs i would agree well said yeah so, so i know it's after 1 a.m where now. you are Is and it? Wow. Yeah, well, uh, you know what this means ben we, you know yeah. you'll just have to have him back because we That's true. i hope so yeah. we haven't uh scratched on so uh we'll wrap things up i want to thank everybody for watching this fine evening for me just google leo pond you find a bunch of stuff could be true could be not i'm not gonna say which is which but i run the dorkening podcast network we got a ton of shows on the network a lot of awesome people doing a lot of awesome stuff look for us at 9 p.m <laughs> eastern standard time we're going to be doing another show tonight and uh so mark where do you like people interacting with you on social media um well I'm on Instagram a bit now and again. I don't really get much time to do this anymore. You know, uh, um, uh, I'm on Instagram a bit. I'm on Facebook. I still use Facebook a lot for friends and family and people, particularly in the Robin and Sherwood community, Transformers community, actually, still. And uh, I am on Twitter. Twitter has, has changed, as you know. Um, but if you want to look for me, I'm on Twitter, MarkRyan243. And um, I get a lot of stuff and a lot of bots and a lot of, 
backs. <laughs> um, <laughs> feel free, feel free. It's water off a duck's back, man. So I don't really care what you think of me. If you, know I mean? if you want to say nice things, be nice. If you don't, don't. I was like, I don't have the time. But um, so, yeah, really, Twitter, uh, Instagram, and, and Facebook are still my major. Awesome. But please right. look at the because that will be coming out next year through Sterling. And we're going to be doing, obviously, major promotions for that. And if it's as successful as Wildwood, Darrow, then everybody will be, will be happy. And we are working, just so you chaps know, um, on a show uh, uh, and a podcast regarding um, the patents that are linked to some of the things we talk about, UAPs and UAPs, because um, that information is not out yet there in the public yet. And um, we think there's a show there which will probably explain some of the stuff that people are mistakenly thinking are UFOs, but are not UFOs, actually stuff that the American US Navy and other things, uh, other elements, have developed um, as 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 craft, so that's that's in the works. Very nice. cool. I like that. Uh, yeah, for that. looking forward yeah. to that. So, uh, Eric, wh- what about you? Where do you like people interacting with you? Uh, well, I'm on. Uh, well, I was on Facebook, but now I'm uh, apparently banned. So now I'm just on Instagram and Twitter. You can find me on uh, on Twitter. I think it's uh, Eric McRoy number six. Uh, and then that's just regular Eric McRoy on uh, on Twitter, I believe. So, Eric, how did you get banned from Facebook? How do you get? <laughs> that is a good question because they sent me a thing that says we're going to put you in jail for thirty days, and if you disagree, hit this button. And I hit the button, and then bam, never got it back. Okay. <laughs> I think I don't know why. Just yeah. freaking That's why they booted me off. So. Yeah, yeah. Pokemon jail or something. Yeah, yep. well, yep. I, I was, I think I was uh, toying with the Digimon and they felt betrayed. So, <laughs> uh, I, I know, I know we don't have time for it, but Eric, next time you're on, remind me to tell you I have a story about Pokemon, uh, Yakuza, and FBI. So, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll wow, you next time, yeah, makes, makes total sense to me. Yeah, yeah, I'm going to yeah, bring yeah. my tarot cards. So. <laughs> uh, Jar Jar. Hey, uh, Splash Pages on Tuesday night here on the Dorkening. And and Leo, since uh, Mr. Ryan there is starting a podcast, he might need a network to get his podcast out to all the streaming services. Hint, hint, we nudge, could, nudge. We can talk. Oh, yes. Yeah. Hint, 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 wink, wink. Nod, nod, huh? Butch, nod. And then maybe I get to meet Mr. Ryan one day, and then we get to talk about black sales. And... Oh, there you go, yeah. Uh, I... It comes back to me at some point. Don't worry about it. <laughs> uh, Benjamin, take us out. So stilltoken.com is where you can go to find out everything about what we do, where we are, what we're doing, comic book, the novel, the product line that we're going to be launching real soon. Oh yeah. Yeah. There's all kinds of stuff coming, but to all our veterans and first responders, we want to thank you for doing what you do. So people like us can do what we do. Stay safe. We'll see you next week. We're out of here. Awesome. We'll catch you later. Uh, Mark, stay on for one minute till the end. Uh, 
hold on. I, crap it. I hit the wrong button. What the hell? What the hell? What the hell? It's usually at the beginning of the show. Oh. Not the end. Uh, yeah. Here we go.